Well, thank you, brother, for leading those songs. I, I feel bad, though. I've decided to change my sermon to the Israelites slaughtering the Canaanites tonight. So, um, no, I, I, I'm kidding. Uh, those were perfect. And in, in many ways, I, I feel like if we have thought about the words that we have sung in these three songs, uh, that would be sermon enough. Good teaching in those songs that we just voiced together. Wonderful to see all of you tonight. Thank you for being here. Uh, Murfreesboro traffic, man, how are you guys doing this? Uh, it did not used to be this way. And uh, I, did, I never lived here, but growing up in Tullahoma and playing ball and things, I remember traveling to and from Oakland and Seagull and Blackman and all these different high schools and playing games and and I don't remember anything like this. So, uh, patience, right? You've all learned it. We learned it tonight. So I want to begin with a question. And I'd like you to think about this question as it pertains to a, a road trip that you might take. Which do you think is more important? The journey or the destination? you go on a road trip with your family, the grand destination that you have chosen, of course, that is the end goal. And, and that's what everyone is anxiously anticipating. But doesn't the journey itself, long as it may be, does not the journey have a number of stops along the way that might also be worth considering? So perhaps this question journey or destination presents a false choice. Maybe it's both. Now, as you think about your life, it's easy to think about the destination. There are a number of destinations that are out in front of us. And as we are thinking about the the life that we are living, we are thinking about the goals that we have in life. There's a number of destinations that we might anticipate. So the destination that we desire might be something like a secure retirement. And we dream of, of having enough money in our accounts that we can live comfortably, that we don't have to worry about how we're going to make it from one month to the next. Or maybe the, the destination, the dream, is happy and spoiled grandchildren. You, you long for the day that you can be a grandparent and you want to spoil those grandkids. And so you, you dream about that. Or, or maybe your destination is, is good health into your golden years. You want to live for a long time so that you can travel and you can enjoy the outdoors and enjoy nature so that you can live to see those grandkids for a number of years so you dream about being healthy throughout your elder years. It's easy to think about the destination, but it's a lot more difficult to think about what the journey demands in order for the destination to become a reality. So let's think about those things that we just mentioned. If you want to have the destination of the secure easy, comfortable retirement. What's the journey 
The journey is saving, sacrificing, making smart investment choices throughout your working years. That's the hard part, isn't it? It's easy to say, well, this is what I want. This is what I know I want the end to be. But the hard part is doing the work that will actually get you there. I want to have good health in my golden years, okay? What that means is you can't eat like a preacher during a gospel meeting all of those years leading up to it. You have to exercise. You have to be conscious of what it is that you're putting into your body. The journey is difficult. The journey involves hard work and dedication. It demands careful thought and planning. Knowing where we want to finish requires that we take proper directional steps to get there. So as we think about that idea, tonight we ask this question. What do we want for our children? Open your Bible to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. As we think about this question, what do we want for our children? What is the destination that we want for them? How do we envision their future? What is that final destination? Now, I want, I want those questions to kind of marinate for a moment. In Judges chapter 13, there are two parents who faced these questions. What will our child's future be? What is ahead of our son? The mother of Samson was visited by God and told that she would bear a son. Look with me at Judges 13 and verse 1. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, when this angel speaks to her and tells her that she is going to bear a son, she goes and she finds her husband Manoah and she tells him what has happened. So in verse 6, the woman came and told her husband, saying, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And she goes on to repeat the instructions 
that she's been given by the angel. Now, verse 8, Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again. Now, notice what he says in this request. Let the man come again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. Send this messenger again so that we will know what we should do for the child. We want to know what he needs. We want to know what his task is. How can we best prepare for this boy? What do you have in store for him, and how might we make that happen? Now, they already have an indication of that because of what was said to Manoah's wife, that the boy would begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines, but, but Manoah wants some confirmation, it seems. And so he asks God, and it says in verse 9, God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? What is to be the boy's rule of life? Your translation might say. What is to be our son's mission? What is his destiny? What is his purpose? And how might we help accomplish that? Those are grand questions, aren't they? God, what do you want for our child? What should we do for this child? How can we help this child? All of those questions are going through the mind of this man and this woman. Samson, as the story continues, grows up in the home of seemingly conscientious parents. Although it does seem that his parents were somewhat enabling in his life, not always putting their foot down and being firm when they needed to do that. And most unfortunately of all, Samson's life reveals a very spiritually disappointing story. But this exchange between the angel of God and Samson's mother and father causes us to ask this question. What do we want for our children? That's what they ask. What should we do for this child? So as we think about that question tonight, what do we really want for our children? All of us would immediately answer, and we would say, well, we want them to go to heaven. That's what we want for our children. That's the easy answer. That's the destination. That's the dream. We want them to go to heaven. But here's the thing. That's easy to say. Just like it's easy to say, I want a comfortable retirement. 
I want good health into my golden years. It's easy to say what the dream is. It's easy to speak about the destination. But the hard part is the journey. As we think about our children getting into heaven, it's easy to say we want them to get into heaven. The hard part is getting heaven into our children. You see, the hard part is the journey. It's the daily steps. It's the daily actions and choices and words and attitudes. It's the daily steps on the path that we take that have to lead to the destination. So for most people in the West, when we ask the question, what do we want for our children? I think the answer to that question is, well, I want my child to grow up and receive a good education, which leads them to a, a good career and a comfortable life. I think that's how most people in the West would answer the question. If you went into the hospitals in Murfreesboro, if you went to the hospitals in Nashville and you went to the, the floor where the children are being born, if you went to the maternity floor of the hospital and you went to these new parents and you said, congratulations on the birth of your child. Now, now what do you want for your child's future? Most of them will say something like this. I think we need to think about this answer. We need to think more deeply about this answer. And specifically, I think we need to focus on the word good. I want my child to receive a good education, which leads to a good career and a I know it says comfortable, good life. We need to think about what we are saying. We need to define good. When we talk about our kids having a good life, a good education, a good career, what do we mean by that? I'm afraid that for most of us, good means lucrative, prosperous, materially. It means high income and comfortable living. But isn't there a danger here? God seems to think that there is. Go with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3 This is the message that Jesus gives to the church at Laodicea, a church that was wealthy, a, a church that, that lived in a materially prosperous city, and the church was apparently 
influenced heavily by that wealth and prosperity. To the church in Laodicea, Jesus says in verse 15, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. What is it that has led to this church being lukewarm in their service to God? Do you understand what Jesus is saying to this church? He says, listen, you, you need to make up your mind. You are either with me or you're against me. You are on this side of the fence or you're on that side of the fence. You can't sit on the fence. Make up your mind. You are either cold or hot. You've got to be one or the other. None of us wants to drink coffee in the morning served at room temperature. You either want your coffee hot or maybe you like it iced, cold coffee. But you don't want room temperature coffee. And when it is mid-August and you've been outside working, mowing the grass or digging in the garden or in the flower bed, you don't come in all sweaty and tired and say, man, I sure would love a glass of room temperature sweet tea. Oh, you want a cold drink. You want it to be one or the other, not in the middle. And that's what Jesus says about this church and their attitude. But the question is, why are they sitting on the fence? Why are they lukewarm? And he says in verse 17, because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. This is a church that is self-satisfied. They have wealth, they have prosperity, and because of that, they feel like everything is great. But the reality is, as Jesus tells them at the end of verse 17, he says, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. Spiritually, you are in poverty while materially, you are prosperous. Moses warned about this, Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31, and in verse 20. The Lord says, for when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. When my people are prosperous, then they will turn away from me. How about Daniel chapter four? In Daniel chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he describes himself in verse four. He says, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. 
Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled in the city of Babylon, a large, great, strong, and prosperous city. In verse 30 of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is walking out on his rooftop and he says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? Look at what I have done. All of this wealth and power which I have made for myself. And in this chapter, God humbles Nebuchadnezzar in a very dramatic way. God seems to believe that there is a danger in great prosperity. Now, I'm not going to take passages here and consider this, but I do want to mention this. It is not wrong, it is not sinful to be wealthy or prosperous. The Bible says that God gives us our blessings and he wants us to enjoy the things that he has given to us. But we need to understand that it requires wisdom to be wealthy. It requires discipline. It requires wisdom for us to take the wealth and the prosperity that God gives us and not misuse it to use it in the way that God wants it to be used so that we can take his blessings and be a blessing to others in the way that we use it. But as we think about this idea of my child getting a good education, which leads to a good career and a good and comfortable life, when we say good, we should not think materially prosperous. Good must be understood to mean God-centered. If I speak of my child having a good education or a good career or a good, comfortable life, I want the word good to mean that God is at the center of all of those things. If my child's education, whether it is grade school or especially if it is higher education, if my child's education turns them away from God, it is not a good education. If they attain high levels of academic achievement and they have a number of advanced degrees and certifications, but they aren't Christians, then it was not a good education. If my child's involvement in sports turns them away from God, then that is not good. If they miss worship for their ball games numerous times every year, year after year, what have we taught them? Yeah, 
Yeah, but, but sports build character. Sports can build character. And I firmly believe that. In fact, today, one of the greatest joys that I've had in a while. We went to Tullahoma today so I could drive around and show the kids, you know, that's the house I grew up in. That's the old church house where we used to go. That's the place where I used to go and get in trouble with my buddies. And, and so we did that with the kids. We gave them the tour of Tullahoma, which, of course, took all of, you know, like nine minutes. Except for this one stop that we made at an elementary school that I did not attend, but the principal of that school was my high school baseball coach. I love this man. He is a wonderful man, great influence on my life. And we had about a 30-minute visit with him today. And it was wonderful. I haven't seen him in years. Sports can build character. That man helped instill character in me. While sports can build character, have you noticed that they often don't? Think about it. Who in our world has been exposed to sports the most? The professional athletes, right? They've been doing it since they were knee-high on a grasshopper. They have had more exposure to sports than anybody else. And yet, how many of us would point our kids to NBA basketball players and say, those are your role models? How many of us would point our grandchildren to NFL players and say, there are your role models right there. Emulate those people. There are some professional athletes who are amazing people. But by and large, they do not make good role models. Career. If my child's career, that good career that I encouraged them to pursue, if their career turns them away from God, then it's not a good career. If my child neglects their spiritual life, or if they neglect their family because of their work, their lucrative career is of no value. I know Christians, and so do you, who have uprooted their families from good environments, particularly environments with good, strong churches. They've plucked their families out of that environment and they've moved them out into the middle of nowhere where there is no strong church of the Lord's people. But the pay was good. The promotion was there. I remember my dad saying to me numerous times when I was a kid, son, I don't care what you do for a living, just be a Christian. You can be the president of a company. 
You could be the custodian of the company. I don't care what you do for a living, just be a Christian. My father drilled that into my mind when I was growing up. So what is our aim then? What do we want for them? Our aim is to push them in a Godward direction. We encourage them in a Godward direction, in their education, in their sports, in their career options. We must point them to him because he is the source of all that is good. He defines what good is. If he is not at the center of it, it is not good. So, for the rest of the time we have, I want to talk to you about two worthy pursuits that Christian parents should consider when you think about what you want for your children. Two things that you should aim for, two destinations that we should all be aiming for as we think about our children. But before I mention what those are, I want to give you a little backstory about this gray box that's popped up on the screen. This past spring, I attended an educational seminar. And in one of the lectures, seminars that was, that was being given, there was a, a panel question and answer session with four or five of the speakers who were there for the seminar. And these were a number of questions that were all over the map in terms of their topic, but, uh, but this seminar is, is a spiritually focused event, and so there were some questions that were about education, and they were kind of more secular in their nature, but there were also a lot of questions that were spiritual in their nature. So as the panelists were taking questions from the audience, they took a question from a mother who was present that day, and their answers to this woman's question provided the genesis of this sermon. I'm paraphrasing this woman's question. But her question was basically this. The world is so evil and discouraging. Sometimes I feel that no matter what I do for my child, to teach him right from wrong, the world will be too strong and will overwhelm him in the end. Sometimes I feel like I am just raising a lamb for slaughter. Ponder that question for a moment. You ever felt like that? We briefly mentioned this in the lesson last night. You turn the news on. You, you get on the internet. You, you see what is happening in the world, and all you see is bad and negative and depressing and discouraging. You never see good news, do you? You never see stories on the 6 o'clock news that make you go, huh, wasn't that great? This mother felt like no matter what she does to raise her child to serve God, in the end, the world will win. 
That's how she felt. I suspect that's how many of us feel sometimes. So the panelists who fielded this question, <laughs> there's actually not a question up there. Her question was, what do we do about it? Help me not feel this way. What should I do? So the panelists who, who fielded this question, they said two things. And these two things stuck out to me. I jotted them down and I said, that'll preach. You've done that before, right, David? That'll preach. Leland, you've done that. I can use that. That's good. And so two days later, Sunday morning, this sermon. Two worthy pursuits for parents when it comes to their children. First, we need to be raising crusaders. Soldiers. We need to raise our sons and daughters to be crusaders who are ready to jump into the battle. I'm going to the book of Jude. Let's go to verse 3 and verse 4. I almost said chapter 3 and 4. If you're looking for Jude chapter 3, you're going to be here a long time. Jude verse 3 and verse 4. Jude writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude was going to write to them about something different. But he says, I had to change my mind, and I wrote to you instead, urging you to fight for what you believe in. Now, why do you change your topic, Jude? Well, why did you do that? In verse 4, he explains, for because certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are some evil and sinister people who have crept in and they're having an influence among God's people. And it has to stop. How are we gonna put a stop to it? I need some people to step up and fight. I need people to join in the battle. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 10? What kind of battle are we talking about? What, what kind of fight is this? Well, Paul answers in verse 3 beginning. He says in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We need soldiers who are ready to fight, but not with swords and shields and spears and bows and arrows. Our weapons are not fleshly, carnal weapons. It's not that kind of a battle. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. If it was, my servants would fight with fleshly, carnal weapons. But Paul says that's not what our war is. Ours is a war of ideas. Ours is a war of words. It is a war of values. It is a war of morals. It is a war about good and evil, right and wrong. And we need people who can stand up and fight using their minds and using their mouths. We need sons and daughters who know truth. But we've got to go a step further than that. We need sons and daughters who don't just know truth, but they can defend it. They can fight for it. They can not only defend when being attacked, but they can go on offense and carry the fight to the enemy. So often, here in the last couple of years, I have seen young people who grew up in the church. They've heard the sermons. They've been in the Bible classes. They know truth. But those young people who know truth, they couldn't explain why it was truth. They couldn't take you to the passages and explain how we arrive at that truth. And and so while they, they gave lip service to this idea of, well, we know what truth is, when it came time in their own lives to stand up for that truth, They didn't do it. They got swept away. And they were swept away by friends, by girlfriends, by boyfriends who were of a different religious persuasion. And they were not able to stand up for what they had seen and heard all their lives. Raised in the church. You know what my response to that has come to be? So what? It is not enough for us to say, I know what the Bible says. I know truth. 
The fact is, beloved, if we say we know it, we better be sure. Because I've seen a lot of young people who said they knew the truth and they got swept away by that which was false. But even if we do truly know truth, what good is that knowledge if we don't defend it? If we don't stand up and fight for it? If we are not willing, when someone comes along and challenges what Scripture says, what good is it if we don't put our foot down and say, no, I'm not doing that? Soldiers fight, and we need soldiers who will join the fray. And here's the second thing that was said. We need soldiers, but the second thing was, as parents, we need to be raising martyrs. You remember the parents' statement? I feel like I'm raising a lamb to be slaughtered. That language, that, that was not coincidental. You know where that language comes from, don't you? That comes from Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Our Lord was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so the panelist who, who heard her question, he caught that expression and he said, ma'am, if you raise your child to be a lamb who is led to the slaughter, then praise God because you did what you were called to do as his mother. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2 and verse 21 1 Peter 2, 21, Peter writes, For you have been called to this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. Jesus has become our example. And if our evil world should prevail over us because we are Christians, if our world is mocking us, imprisoning us, or even making us into martyrs because we stand for the cause of Christ, then we will join a large number of faithful, dedicated men and women throughout history who have gone through that same journey. 
Do you remember in Acts chapter 5, the apostles rejoiced that they had been able to suffer for the cause of Christ? I want you to notice how Jesus blends these two ideas for us perfectly. Was Jesus a soldier? Jesus stood for truth and right. He defended what his father said. He defended scripture. He stood firm for what he believed. He was a soldier. And he was a martyr. Who because of his fighting as a soldier, carried his cross to his own death. Beloved, we are not called as parents to raise children simply to become decent, law-abiding citizens one day. It is not our task to, to raise future doctors and teachers and cooks and merchants and good people who are honest, who don't cheat on their spouse and who pay their taxes. Listen, atheists do that, beloved. We've got to raise the bar. We've got to get beyond that. We have to raise soldiers who are prepared to be martyrs. If our children will stand with Jesus, defending him, defending his word, we won't care what their occupation is. We won't care if they got a PhD or if they only made it through the seventh grade. If our children will be willing to sacrifice everything that they have for the glory and the honor of God, even their own lives, in order to follow Jesus, then God will be pleased with them. And if God is pleased with them, we will be too. I know what I'm saying tonight may, may sound... Well, that's, come on, martyrs, really? Come on, we're not getting there. That's not going to happen. Not here, not in America. Beloved, I'm afraid we have no idea what's ahead of us. I don't know what our government is going to do to us. I don't know what people from other nations or other systems of faith may do to us. I, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I, I, I've never claimed to be one. But it doesn't matter. We have to be prepared either way. We have to be prepared no matter what comes. Or maybe you're thinking, man, you're, you sound a little extreme. I mean, you've, you've been getting pretty excited tonight. You know, we can tell you're sweating a little bit. Maybe this... Maybe you just need to relax a little bit, preacher. Maybe I do. But frankly, I've seen too many brothers and sisters who've been swept away. And I'm tired of watching it. I'm tired of seeing people I care about get swept away by false doctrine, by people who are leading them astray because they're not willing to take a stand. What do you want for your children 
I hope you'll pray about this. What do you want for your grandchildren? Pray about it. Thank you for listening to me tonight. I hope I've said some things that are helpful to you. Challenging, perhaps. Challenging to me. Listen, when those panelists gave those two answers, it hit. I was convicted. And I felt like it needed to be shared. So thank you. If we can help you tonight by becoming a Christian or returning to the Lord Jesus, beginning to fight his battles with him again, if we can help you tonight. We invite you. Please come and please stand and sing. Jesus.